0: hey what's up blazer fans welcome to the blazers edge podcast i am tara bowen biggs joined as always by blazers outsider danny meringue danny oh hello what a wonderful introduction tara Why? thank you very much um it is a pleasure to talk (laughs) to to you i know now you got me all screwed up i don't know what to do (laughs) it's wonderful to talk to you today dan Um, been itching to talk to somebody about basketball. There is not a lot happening in the basketball world because football seems to have taken over the entire internet, although I've been watching a lot of WNBA, which has been really fun. Today was the last day of the WNBA season.
1: And apparently officiating is just as weak and soft there as it is (laughs) to me.
0: Yeah, they had a highlight of an ejection that was like the look on the ref's face was hilarious because
1: they were literally trying to ask the ref that they could play rock paper scissors instead of a jump ball.
0: <laughs> That's what they were doing.
1: That no, no joke. Well, that was literally the and, and the ref turned around and like bumped into her. Yeah, and her hand touched him, and he, oh boy, I, I have looks like I found a new set of refs to hate. <laughs>
0: In any case, I've been enjoying it the last uh, couple of weeks. There's been some good basketball going on. And I have to say, watching Brittany Griner play, it reminds me of all the times you said that Damian Lillard just needs to pass over the top to Yusuf Nurkic because she plays with her arms just straight up in the air, running around the paint with her Elbows out. Hands together. right, And they just have to throw the ball somewhere in the vicinity and she just grabs it. And I was like, that is what Dan means between Damien and Yusuf Nurkic. Although I will still take the bounce pass for style. Hey, don't get me wrong. I don't mind
1: a bounce pass. It's the bounce pass like below the knees. Do not make somebody that large bend down that far to get the ball because then not only do you have the problem with them bobbling a catch. They've got to bring it up from there, and that just puts him in a bad position. When you put it up high, he keeps it up high, and a guy that big with the ball already that up that high, going with momentum, guess what happens? People get the hell out of the way.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I it just really uh, brought it into focus for me watching all the WMB I've been watching. But anyway. NBA, let's talk about that. We took some questions tonight uh, from Rip God, if we need City yeah, to find out what is on everybody's mind. So let's go through those. And then I have an interview that I did with Ben Taylor that we'll play at the end of it. But first, let's find yes. out what's on everybody's mind in Rip City. So the first one is from Sir Wheezy, also at Wheezy Sir. Okay, so the question here, I need you to take a deep breath and let me get through the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When will K Love officially be named a Blazer? What will the Blazers likely have to give up to make the inevitable happen? Okay. Uh, so let's let's actually answer this question
1: and let's I, I know I joke about it, but like and I know everybody around the world in in Blazers, Twitter, Reddit forums blazer's edge everywhere is sick and tired of this because it's literally been five maybe six years of this um but the reality is that it's likely like it 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 genuinely is a likely occurrence at this point like everybody that i've talked to from, from around both organizations and people that i trust these overtures have been made in the past like they have had discussions about Kevin Love. Kevin Love is a big name still. Uh, I don't think the fit is the absolute best, but Portland has forty-three million dollars in expiring contracts, and they need to make a move for a player of consequence. Um, and I mean, if it's gonna,
0: if it's ever gonna happen, it's this trade deadline.
1: That's just the reality of it.
0: So I don't, I don't think the fit is the worst, and I think the sort of the added thing that's going on this off season especially is Kevin himself seems to be like all putting out the signs please please have me come home you know from between hanging out with cj doing a two-part podcast with cj having channing fry um talk on his behalf going on the hbo the shop with cj going hard on instagram representing all spending a lot of time in portland yeah representing like he had this great denim outfit on the other day that um you know was all about Portland and
1: he's a promo of a voodoo donuts away from signing a deal like that's <laughs> that's re- that's really where we're
0: all he's, where we're he's at he's clearly interested in coming and but like I said like I started with I don't think the fit is that bad
1: I don't think it's bad I just don't think it's great and it's not that he's not a good player cuz uh, people get me confused or get my opinion on this confused that I don't think he's a good player the dude's a walking double double yeah but I just him next to Yusuf Nurk is just not an optimal fit. Like, we're, we're going into this season with Zach Collins at the power four position right now, right? And, and people are like, well, we just don't really have anybody who can play any damn defense outside of the free throw line. But, like, maybe Zach can cover up for a little bit of that with his mobility. Love's not going to do that. And, like, the, going into this season, that's my biggest question. We talked about it last week on the podcast. Like, with Adrian was, you know, hey, guys, uh, who's going to play defense on this team? And, like, is the offense going to be that much more valuable? But the flip side of it is the – at least the negative part for me is that contract because you were then locked into Dame CJ Love. Mm -hmm. Like that's – listen, I know nobody's untradeable, but if Love's the third guy making $30 million, it's going to be difficult to get anything of of consequence in return for him if you decide to move on from him, if it doesn't work, if something – Whatever happens, the the, I guess the good side here is that love at this point in his career can play some center. So he becomes like your de facto second string center. You can play him with Zach. You can alternate between Nurkic and love at the five. You could have love play the four. Or the five offensively, uh, excuse me, the four offensively and the five, or excuse me, the f- yes, the five <laughs> defensively and the four offensively, haven't spread the floor, and that would give Collins what he wants in to play, kind of more of the five.
0: Have you heard anything from him about being one of those guys who doesn't want to play one position over the other? No, no, he. For me, I think it might, for what he does,
1: I think he wants just to be utilized, and he talked about that on the shop, like how hard it was for him. And even CJ said it. The guy, he goes, Kevin Love right now is 26 and 12. But with what he's expected to do with Cleveland, they're not going to get that out of him because they're, they're more interested in developing Colin Sexton and Garland and, and the other young kids. Um, like, And I think that's part of the reason why we're getting some of these overtures from Kevin. I'm like, hey, I kind of want to get out and like finish my career with a winner. Like, He's at the point in his career where I, he doesn't want to help like redevelop a team. I mean, I, I don't blame him. Do you?
0: No, and I think that he could have an impact here. And I think that, yes, his contract is very expensive, but sometimes you just have to you have to pay more. I mean, that's just, if he fills the need that the Blazers you know, have figured out all on paper what type of a player they need to get in there, and you and I haven't seen that piece of paper where they've written their wits, you know, hopes and dreams on. If yeah. Kevin Love matches those, I don't think it matters how much It's going to cost to them.
1: And the, the contract cost is one thing. The flip side of it obviously is what like the cost of the deal is. And that was the second part of the question. What are the blazers? Like they have to give up to make it happen. Um, Anthony Simons will not be included in a deal, not unless there's another premier player coming back.
0: Yeah, I just I put Anthony, si- Anthony Simons in the box of like CJ, like all that discussion over CJ getting traded. And we talked and talked and talked about it. And it just never they kept saying it's never going to happen. And guess what? It's never going to happen. And I think Anthony is that position.
1: But the Blazers did completely abandon who they were going to draft this draft with this past draft
0: in order because to of how. Little. Because they,
1: they saw Nas there and, like, that's a lottery asset. Like, that's somebody we could we could talk another team into. Like, hey, he fell, but he was a lottery pick. Everybody had him projected as a lottery pick. The Blazers were, were going to take a shooter. 100%. And then they saw Nas there and they're like, uh, we didn't expect him to be here. I think they I think they had him, like, 12th or 14th on their board. Mm-hmm. So they, they were they, where they were drafting, there was no chance he was going to be there. And when he was, they're like, uh... Yeah, because when the Blazers draft guys, well, the first thing they look at is are they an immediate contributor, and the answer to that unequivocally has been no since Damian Lillard, right? And well, so the second part of that is is to,
0: they did see Collins as that.
1: I, I don't think immediate contributor.
0: I, I think they. You don't think that they traded two draft picks to move up to get somebody that they thought was going to be able to contribute right away, or, or do you no. think it was maybe more like a, here's a guy we're going to give playing to. Time right away. So they didn't know, they didn't necessarily think he was going to be a difference maker right away, but they thought that he was going to like be playing right away. More so,
1: quote unquote, their guy. Mm-hmm. Like that's who they locked in on. And I don't think that was necessarily about the immediate contribution. I think they said they, like we've heard Neil say, he sees him as a foundational building block, cornerstone, yada, yada, yada. But I think that's different from an immediate contributor. Uh, Dame was obviously an immediate contributor yeah and what blazers typically do with these later draft picks and second round picks is they want to get something out of them certainly like they, i mean they want to get those contributions those 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 end of first second round picks that are able to generate statistical production and, and, and provide value or immense in portland and what they've tried to do over the last seven eight years now is develop those guys a little bit faster so that they can be trade assets problem is, is they haven't hit till year three or year four, and at that point in time, you don't have the ability to trade them. Mm-hmm. So with Nas, I think they're hoping they can speed that process up because of what the perception of him is, uh, and they can use him as an asset uh, in a trade further down the road. But that's, that's just me kind of thinking here, and I think that it, of any of the guys that's likely to be included, I would put him very high on the list right now.
0: So if the Blazers wanted to trade somebody for Kevin Love right now, there's currently no restriction on when Kevin Love can be traded. There's no restriction on a a lot – there are a few Blazers who can't be traded for a while. So just so people are aware, um, Hazonia, Gasol, Tolliver, and Hood – you know, none of whom make close to what <laughs> uh, Kevin Love makes. Uh, none of them can be traded until December fifteenth. So, if somebody for some reason won one of those guys, they'd have to wait until after December fifteenth. You think it's most likely that it's near the trade deadline, and if it's near the trade trade deadline, what a lot of people are talking about is that Whiteside would be um, the trade, the person traded. Whiteside makes twenty seven million and. Kevin makes uh 28 million with Whiteside. They could add somebody like Gary Trent Jr. or Nas, and it would still the money would still work out for a trade.
1: Yeah, yes, and and talking to people in in around Cleveland, the the thought is that little's not enough to get it done with Whiteside. That it would have to be a third team involved. I I know that Cleveland has had discussions that with Kevin Love about trading in the past. I know that they, they, there were deals that were close to being done that a lot of people don't know about. Uh, and it was because the asking price was very high. Uh, I, I think the, the prevailing thought is that Kevin Love won them a title or helped them win a title with LeBron and Kyrie.
0: That 30 seconds of defense at the end of that last yeah. game.
1: And just, he's been a good soldier for them. And I think they're going to, the Cavs don't have a lot of political capital in the NBA. And I think they'll do what Denver has done for the past like six, seven years, which is try to build a player friendly environment again. And and how you do that is don't force a player to demand a trade. Know kind of what's going on within your organization. Know your players. And if Kevin's going to bite the bullet and and be there for you, but you know he's not happy or he's not 100 percent thrilled to be in that position – you try to get him a place that you know he, he would like to go. And I think they'll give him that good soldier treatment uh, at the deadline. Now, in between now and then, the price is going to stay high because there's no reason for them to deal him early. There just there just isn't. But at the deadline, they realize, hey, we're not going anywhere. We could get some young assets. We can get some cap relief. We can maybe be a player in some free agency. We can add another young small forward to the mix. I think it's something they have to look
0: at. Okay, well, we were supposed to go through that one quickly, and so here we go. <laughs> I think that one's the
1: one that's going to take up the most time. Let's be honest.
0: Right. Well, yeah, I think so. We, we see you out there, Kevin. All right, Rip Village at Rip Village. Uh, great question. I love this question. How does Stotts evolve his defensive scheme featuring zero perimeter defenders? So my first question is: Do they really have zero? Uh, they've got maybe one plus
1: defender. I mean,
0: like if you, so, you know. Baysmore, wood Wood's got length. And then, you know, Collins, could that, you know, he could be one. That's so- I think it's stretching it
1: when you put him as a perimeter defender. He's a defender.
0: Well, but he's not going to be hanging around the basket because that's where Sam white is going to be. So he's got to be somewhere. I think he's okay
1: out to 18 feet. Like, I think this is the year where we kind of get to see him operate in more space and the jury's still out. But like one through three, their best perimeter defenders, like athletically, are Baysmore, Hood, and, and realistically, Nas. Like that, if Nas is going to find any way onto the court this year, that's how he does it. Because, I mean, he's an athlete unlike they have on this roster with size.
0: Okay. So, like, but the thing that I love about this question is the evolution of the defensive scheme because I don't think changed. they, you don't think they change at all? I mean, they still got white side playing close to They just slot the somebody in to do exactly what Alpha Rukamenu and uh, Mo Harkless did with this completely different personnel who have not shown that they can do that. They just throw them in there. I mean, I'm not. I'm not being saying that to be facetious because it does seem like the way that they've developed this defense over the course of many years is that it's not supposed. It's not supposed to be sexy. It's supposed to be one that everybody can do once they get the hang of it.
1: The, the, the thing is, I, I totally get what you're coming where you're coming from on this. But the, the crux of the Blazers' defense will always be dependent on, one, a big guy in the middle. And this is always – the asterisk here is with Dame and CJ. You don't have the size, length, and ability to put a lot of pressure on the ball with those two out there. They, they, they just don't have that in their bag. Now, Dame has shown he can hold his own one-on-one. He still gets lost sometimes in pick-and-roll coverage, and that's that's always going to be his bugaboo. But – like. Taking on a task in the playoffs of, of going man-to-man with, with with Westbrook, he was just fine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, uh, Jamal Murray did fine. Like They're not hiding Dame anywhere. But the flip side of this is they're also not going to sit there and, and try to send Dame or CJ to trap and blitz or, or send a double somewhere. So if you're not going to do that, especially with how the guards are in the NBA – and I don't think you're going to send Rodney to do that. Like you may see a little bit of additional ball pressure with the second unit with with like Baysmore or something like that. But I just I don't see them really changing. I, if anything, if if there are any changes, I think they simplify things even more. But I, I I don't see them like going too advanced on anything.
0: So when you look at how they've played defense over the last like four years or so, they their whole thing has been to hold down how many shots the opponents takes from three. They've they've always been, you know, in the top in like the last four years, they've been among the top five teams in terms of limiting how many three point attempts their Mm -hmm. opponents make. So do you think that they can still do that with this new personnel? Yeah, you still run guys off the line. Uh-huh. That
1: I I think that'll still be something they really stick to. Clearly, they're they're a team that didn't take many corner threes, but they also limited opportunities. And I think that's when I say when I, when I say simpler, that doesn't mean like worse, because I I think some people may get that implication. When I say simpler, I, I think that they they will lock in on the things they really want to take away. The Blazers didn't foul last year. Like I, I think they were second and third in fouls committed. Like they they are very good about or excuse me. About putting people on the free throw line. I should I should caveat that. Because they did foul, but they didn't put guys at the free throw line very often. Uh the other part of this is again, they run guys off a three-point line.
0: How do you run a guy off a three-point line? What are some of the ways they do that?
1: Closing out under control. But not just running at them, like knowing tendencies. And I think the Blazers are very, very this is a very underrated part of their defense. They are they understand. Where guys want to get to let's let's take because it's just so damn obvious. Um, Isaiah Thomas, he's going left and there are guys that like, he's he's the most I'm going left guy there is in the league. So you take away his left when you run him off the line, force him to go right in just little tendencies like that, knowing where guys want to get to take their shots. And this is where the counter to this is, is where Damon CJ are so damn good. Everybody in the league knows that when CJ goes left from the from the right-hand side, he's going to get to the right-hand elbow, he's going to hezzy or he's going to hop step or step back and go to that mid-range pull-up. Everybody knows it but, it, but defenses aren't necessarily built to stop that right now. And I think part of the evolution of like the the super the superstar diaspora that kind of happened this offseason and the implication of some teams running two big men at a time now, I think the spacing changes and how the gravity is around the league. Now, I think you'll see some of those shots be defended a bit more aggressively, but I think that also opens up how teams defend teams. I know that's a a really just kind of generic answer, but I think that's one of the underlying storylines that I'm looking at this year because of the, the, the talent, You know, bar being more or less equal around the league, um, how teams run guys off and what the counters are to counters and and things of that nature are are for teams. And I think with the Blazers keeping things simple, I think that will allow them to get off to a better start to the season.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be super interesting because – Aminu and Harkless were so essential when LeBron James came to town, when Kawhi Leonard came to town. Yeah. And so now it's like, are they just going to do the same thing and continue to send one person after him, and then just do everything they can to make sure that those players just don't get the ball? You limit everybody else. Yeah. Just keep the ball away from them. So it's OK that only one person is there <laughs> to guard them. All right. Next question. From Nolan at Life Sized Giants wants to know what is the big man rotation going to look like? How much can how much pow can we expect before the return of Bosnian Beast? Who fills that small ball four role defensively?
1: Uh, I think if you're looking at the small ball four, it start hit that at first. That's that's going to be Mario. Uh, People may be people may be surprised by that, but I think Mario is going to get a big chunk of that. We're certainly
0: seeing a little roll, or just because he's generally athletic. he's, he's athletic.
1: He has potential to be a positive shooter. Like it still hasn't really shown yet, but it's still better than Evan. And we saw Evan fill that role. Uh, I think you'll see, the starting lineup is going to be Zach at the four, obviously, and Whiteside at the five until Nurk comes back. And then when a lot of things can get really weird if, if, if Nurk comes back and Whiteside's still on the roster. Well,
0: but you also got to think it's like Nurkic isn't going to just step right back into like starting center no, minutes. I certainly mean, certainly not. He's going to be worked in. It could be till the playoffs, I would think, until. Yeah, before he's up to speed. Yeah, certainly. Um,.
1: But I've seen a lot of people are saying that Zach's going to get twenty plus minutes at the center. I I don't see that happening. I think Whiteside's going to get probably twenty eight minutes at the center position, and you're going to get Gasol between twelve and fifteen. People think that Gasol's not playing, and I'm like, (laughs) Gasol's playing, folks. Like that's that's been driven home pretty solidly by people to to me that would be in a position to know such such things.
0: And, And I'm I'm kind of assuming that like Myers last season when he played, he played 14 minutes and that's kind of sort of the role that I was thinking that Powell might get.
1: Exactly. And I think, but the thing is, I think he's going to play more consistently than Myers. Uh Uh-huh.
0: Like every night.
1: Yeah. Powell's going to be an every night guy. Like that's, that's how it's been explained to me. Um, Tolliver, I think is the guy that's going to be more in the Myers role. Okay. Like in in particular situations, Tolliver is going to be the guy that comes out off the bench and gives you a spark as a three point shooter. Mm -hmm. Uh, will Zach get minutes at the five? Yes. But I think it's going to be in particular situations where I think they kind of threw him a little bit into the fire to see how he'd do to start the season last year. And I think they're, instead of doing that, I think they're going to ramp him up Mm -hmm. as far as minutes at the five. Uh, cause there were times where he was overmatched and there were times where he had great games. And I think they want to see him be successful. And, And Zach said it himself. He got down on himself. When he he had poor performances and I think getting his mentality right and knowing he's supposed to be a contributor and that they are counting on him and he's going to get minutes and he's going to get opportunities, excuse me, are going to be huge for his development. So I think they're going to they're going to be a little bit more precise with how they employ him at the five, like putting Zach out there when at the five, when Embiid's out on the floor is not a good idea. You know what I mean? Like it's just—it's not fair to him. He's—he's he's not the 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 physical specimen that Embiid is. So, and, and not that Gasol is, but Gasol knows every damn trick in the book.
0: He can rely a little bit more on his uh, experience to figure yes. out what to do against somebody that he's physically not a good matchup for. So, will you see Zach get a big chunk of minutes on a night when like it makes sense for
1: him to be- get a big chunk of minutes at the center, or if Whiteside gets in foul trouble and it makes sense? Yes, but I think the. The overarching belief is that Zach – if I had to give a minute dispersion – I did this earlier in the summer on the site. But I I would put Whiteside at about 28, Zach at about 26, Powell gets between 12 and 15. And then you can insert Hazonia at the the small ball four, uh, uh, Tolliver gets a few minutes. And obviously the wild card is – and we've talked about it the last couple weeks. Does Scal have a great camp and and make an appearance as – you know, like you've said, like the Noah Vonley, just like – guaranteed minutes like here's eight minutes to, to scout let's see if we can get something out of him you know um but i think that's gonna kind of be the big man rotation
0: i think this big man rotation is, is particularly interesting one of the things that uh ben and i talked about in the interview that we have coming up is kind of about the team building aspect you know of this team and how you know we you and i have talked about it a little bit before in terms of you know how many how many different skills or not skills, but how many different things that they do does each player bring? And like for a long time, everybody felt like a bunch of one dimensional players, but now they're the siloed starting,
1: players. Yes. Yeah.
0: But now they're starting to be able to have, so there might be nights where Zach does a lot of this one thing, but he doesn't do much um, of this other thing because of the lineup or the, the, the matchup that he Because There's more overlap. Right. And so Hassan might be doing this thing and, you know, instead of Zach and that they can kind of trade off a little bit and then Pow can kind of also fill in, in whatever thing that they need. But I'm kind of pretty fascinated by the, the forward lineup. And, you know, even to the point where I'm wondering, like, you know, the way they always had Damon, CJ, and then no backup point guard, but just another, another guard where they could all, and I'm wondering if like they could do something similar with, the forwards. Like they don't really have a backup center. They just have a plan where they always are playing, you know, s- two tall guys
1: <laughs> Yeah, no, and that's the thing is the Blazers did get bigger in the offseason certainly. Mm-hmm. Like having Powell and having um now Zach at the four. Uh Hazonia at the four yeah,
0: Zach at the four is bigger than Amino. I hadn't thought about yeah. that
1: before. Yeah, I mean you're going yeah. you're going from six nine to a legit seven foot. I mean they're significantly bigger the, and, and Hassan is every bit a massive human being. So I mean they're they're a bigger and Rodney. Rodney's long uh at the three. Uh so they're they're yeah, a they're, they're a bigger. bigger yeah, they're they're a big I mean and your your starting point or your backup point guard is Anthony Simons. I mean, Anthony's six four, six five. Yeah, I mean they're like they're a bigger team. So like I think it's gonna like we we've talked about this throughout the summer, like the storylines that I'm looking for. That's certainly up there.
0: How tall everybody is? Or just the fact that they're a longer team than they've been. They're
1: a longer team in general, because I think that that can cover up for some deficiencies. Like being longer is a good thing.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Are you ready to move on? Yeah. All right. Uh, Madam Acacia wants to know, will the Blazers issue a field guide so we know who everybody is? (laughs) <laughs> and that is why you read the programs, folks. You know yep. what? They go to all the pro- all of the uh, trouble to print up the programs. So read the programs. You know, I went to Ashland a couple weekends ago to go see plays. And the people that I was like, as soon as I got there, I got like, you know, the playbill and like read everything about all the plays that I was going to go see. And the <laughs> people that I was with, they had like no idea like who any of the people were. And I was like, oh, it's that person. And, the- and I was like, you didn't you? It's right there. They, they provided it, a little book that said who's they're, playing. They're free. Whom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, but I it will definitely be needed. My biggest thing is I keep forgetting about players. Like, I'll be like, oh, my God, I forgot about Anthony. Tol- Anthony Tolliver. Yeah. I totally it, forgot it, about him. I feel so bad. I think
1: once we get, and we've already seen the the, the trickle, uh, Hazonia's in town. Zach's in town. Oh, okay. A uh, couple of guys are already at, at, at the P.F. Getting geared up, so I would expect that we'll we'll start getting a little bit more content, so to speak, of uh, scrimmages and 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 like uh, right before we hopped on to record, Hazonia was was on Twitch saying this is my first li- live stream. Uh, he, he he's our gamer replacing uh, Myers in that sense.
0: He got his system all set up.
1: Yep, he said this is my this is my my first live PDX stream.
0: So they didn't do a Labor Day weekend mini camp. Um, they didn't they haven't gotten away anywhere, which kinda surprised me. I kinda thought because they had so many new players, they might do a team bonding trip, but doesn't look like that has happened. Do you think it will? If it
1: does, it won't happen for probably two weeks because the uh the rodeo trip, the you know, the around state yeah, deal. Right. That that starts this week. Right. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if somewhat locally you see Hazonia um or Basemore or any of those guys. or even Nas. You know, get some of the, the young kids out there. I, I highly doubt you see POW out there. <laughs> you know. Uh, unless there's a wine tasting tour at the porch. Or doing something culture. <laughs> exactly uh, but that that's going to happen I think after that if anything um, that week in between uh, camp starting and them getting out I think if they do, if they are going to do it that, that'll be when it happens you know,
0: but. because these guys have grown up so much and we've watched them kind of like grow up in front of our eyes you know and it used to be like you know we're going to go on the weekend we're going to go watch a baseball game we're going to go work out we're going to do all this stuff like I see them now being more like a board retreat like okay we're going to go to a winery and we're going to stay there for yeah. a weekend and we're going to have a bunch <laughs> of meetings and we're going to have our notebooks that like are full of all of the rules and we're gonna go over them and then we're gonna drink a lot of wine
1: It seems actually one of the older teams in the league now like the average like just two years ago they were like well, one of the youngest just Powell teams alone
0: drove the whole yeah.
1: thing up it, adding Powell, i mean his own is young anthony's yeah. young gary's young nas is young i mean i think nas was like born in 2000 they got like they have
0: way more <laughs> of a variety of ages than they've had in yes. a long
1: time and this is something we've, we've talked about over the last couple of years is how they didn't have any of those, like, in-prime guys. They've got a ton of guys in that 24 to
0: 29 area now. It's almost like they planned how they were going to build this team, Dan.
1: Mm.
0: <laughs> no, you're not going to go that far? Um
1: but yeah, no, I think the average age of like the – based on like the minutes uh, projected, I think the Blazers are like the third or fourth oldest team in the league at like 27.2 or something like that. So they're uh, they're an older team now.
0: If I hear anybody from Denver say, well, you know, they're the third youngest team in the league, one more time, I'm going to fly <laughs> down there and I don't know what I'm going to do. I have a lot of feelings about Denver. OK, the the next question is also something I have a lot of feelings about. This one is from John Purit. Thoughts on the NBA banning ninja headbands. The Hashimaki. Let me provide the background here for people who have been offline for the last couple of days. Two days ago, I think, Mike Scott from the Philadelphia 76ers now, he made a comment about how he wasn't going to be wearing his headband anymore because Nike and the NBA had banned it. And then somebody who I've never heard of before on Twitter, like reported on their Twitter thing that NBA and Nike were banning the Ninja style headphones and head headbands. And everybody has just lost their minds over this. And my thing is, is where is the origin of this? Like I actually tweeted at Nike and NBA and I was like, hey, where is the origin of this? Because I have not seen any, and I have looked, and if somebody finds it, please share it with me. I think that people just took this and just, like, went off with it. I don't think this is happening. I think that, why would Nike ban their own headbands that are It's, it's, it's
1: merchandise popular? that you could sell.
0: Why would the NBA, like, take even the tiniest step forward in terms of trying to ban a piece of an item of apparel. They have learned a long time ago that that is not exactly. okay. Why would they do that again? They would it, not. Here,
1: there's a couple things at play here. If that is true or, if, or if it was true and it got out and Nike and the NBA were like, "Uh Oh, because if they had this plan and they just did it and it was done, it'd be one thing. The reaction to it tells you everything you need to know. It's a bad idea. Nobody wants to see this happen. And to get even further, I don't care where you sit politically. If you look at the David Stern era and the restriction on clothing, there was certainly, certainly racist undertones tied to that. Adam Silver has got to be smart enough to know that there is no way in hell that he can expend any capital at all defending getting rid of it because there's nothing to gain from it. There's literally nothing to gain. You're just going to piss people off. There's ter- give me, give me something to walk me back off this stance, Tara. Tell me there's no, something. To because gain
0: the only thing that I can say to you is that not, I'm not even saying that it's a bad idea. I'm saying it's not even an idea that's out there. It's just some, it's been completely made up out of nowhere and like they just they just relaxed the you know the one remaining restriction on you know oh you can only wear colored shoes on certain days yes and they just open that wide open and like nobody's worried about you know anybody getting hurt by a headband I mean you should see what the NBA players like they have like or the W NBA players they have their hair all over the place I mean they just they're not worried about hurting anybody with anything on it's just it's a ridiculous idea. You want to have a ridiculous here real like, quick? The
1: NFL just opened up and they're the no fun league. They have restrictions on everything. Odell Beckham Jr. for the Cleveland Browns just played a damn game with a $200,000 watch on. Okay, it's a watch. Like, if you hit somebody, you catch somebody with that. It's metal. It's sharp. Like, if, if people, like, now if people, like, start, like, cutting the, the back of the headband, like, putting beads on it, like, that kind of thing... <laughs> You start whipping people in the face. I can see the NBA be like, listen, man, you can't you can't do that.
0: Yeah, I just I think we're in agreement here. This is not um, this is not happening.
1: Because here's the thing. Like, if you go as far as saying it's a player safety thing. What about players with dreads or or, or, like, is that is that a player safety thing? And like, then you get into that whole box again of do you really want to get into legislating cultural apparel?
0: I'm just saying it's not even a thing. Listen, somebody at Nike
1: may have told Mike Scott that. It, it's a, that's a likely possibility. Mike Scott did wear the headband. But like, until the NBA had... like What the NBA should do right now... Why would
0: Nike say that about their own thing that they produce saying, oh, hey, don't oh, I wear know. that. That doesn't look professional. That's that's outrageous. I mean, people say dumb stuff all the time. That's,
1: that's, <laughs> that's what true. So like, it's not out of the question to think that this might be something that was discussed. But if the NBA were smart they would either say absolutely nothing or come out with a denial. Mm-hmm. Like those are the two options. Right. You don't embrace it. That's for damn sure.
0: So if anybody can find the original source of this, that is not Mike Scott or Zach Bagu, who's the Twitter person who said that this was happening, that everybody keeps retweeting. I would love to see it. All right. I think, I think we'll move on from that. I just get very, every time I see that, I just go, it's <laughs> done. It's done. Yeah. So it was a good question. I'm glad that John asked it. Um, okay, last question. Adam Alizaraga, I think, um, at just at home, wants to know, now or before the season starts, I'd like to see your predictions for the top eight teams in predicted seed order from both East and West. And what's a realistic trade deadline deal would you like to see Portland make, assuming Nurk is healthy? And I will pass on this until later because – I don't have anything to say until I've seen basketball. You don't like commitment early. No, I, I do not. You don't, but I know you do. Uh, I mean, I, it's fun.
1: Like there's nothing really to be gained from it, but the flip side of it is it's like, I, I, I like having the receipts and looking back on it.
0: So what are your top eight?
1: So for the West, because this is the, where I'm obviously more focused. Uh, I have the Clippers first and that's based on talent. That could certainly be something that falls off because they are going to gain management the hell out of that team. PG may not be ready for the first two months of the season. Um, they they have more depth than probably most other teams. They save Utah. Um, so they can they can afford to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I can say st- so much depth. They, they have so mm-hmm. much good stuff going on down there. <laughs> so uh, I could easily see them covering up um, some of the shortages they may have. Uh, but I think that the, the top three teams for me, you can put them in any order. Uh, And that's the Clippers, the Nuggets, and the Jazz. Mm -hmm. I think those are the three best teams and the three deepest teams. I think both teams have second units that can just put the fear of God in you. Uh, The Jazz clearly loaded up by getting Mike Conley over Ricky Rubio.
0: I think that's an upgrade, but I think people are overemphasizing that.
1: I I think they're under-emphasizing it. You you know how I feel about Conley. And as it pertains to the Blazers— He's the second best defender of Damian Lillard I've ever seen, uh-huh. Chris Paul being first. And I think in head-to-head matchups, that's that's problematic for the Blazers. Uh, Bogdanovich is a huge upgrade for them. They can either start him and have Ingles come off. They can have Ingles start and be the first guy out and come in and lead the sixth unit or the, the, as a sixth man um, and, and lead the second unit. Like they've they've got a lot going on for them. Uh, Denver, I mean, yeah, Portland beat them in this in the playoffs last year. They brought everybody back. They're a year older, and I. Just think that, you know
0: Well, you know they're the third youngest team in the league. Sorry.
1: That's perfect. Continue. That makes sense. Then the next tier, I think, really is the Lakers, Rockets, Warriors, and Blazers. And this is gonna depend on health, fit, how things play out. Uh people who, I I think that when healthy, Portland is a better team than the Warriors are right now. But that's obviously a caveat of they don't have Clay Thompson. If Clay's back that's still a hell of a lot to overcome. And really, like, I think people sleep on Steph too much, but I think as Portland is constructed, I think in the regular season, I think they're better fit to be a team that goes more for regular season wins, if that makes sense. But the flip side of this is a BS. Yes, you heard me say Houston, Houston is either a boomer bus team. Like, Russ getting downhill at you, like in the playoffs, is one thing. Regular season Russ is a different beast. Like, he's still a triple double monster. Dividing up the touches between him and Harden is going to be interesting. I'm
0: so fascinated to see what happens there.
1: They could easily just completely implode, but they could also win 55, 60 games. Uh-huh. Like, that's that, the, the spectrum for them is probably wider than any other team.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, Harden doesn't show many signs of tapering off and now he doesn't have Chris Paul to contend with so i mean yeah. he has Russell Westbrook which is a different kind of challenge but i could see them having better synergy
1: yes and, and, and i know that russ is not a shooter but now you maybe alleviate some of the stress on harden of being the primary ball handler like harden is a spot up shooter is lethal mm-hmm. um so uh, it's going to be interesting as much mm-hmm.
0: yeah Okay, so yeah. you've got, in your second tier, say that again?
1: The Lakers, the Rockets, the Warriors, and the Blazers. Okay. Now, the Lakers are, are predicated on health, certainly, because if something happens to Braun again, like he's...
0: Or Anthony Davis.
1: Yeah, I mean, for the most part, AD has been pretty damn healthy. Has he? He has. He's had some nicks here, there, but nothing ever serious. Um, Braun I worry about a little bit, because a groin issue at his size, at his age that's that's a bit much linger. I don't care how good you take care of your body. Time remains undefeated. Uh, It's going to be interesting. I I think those teams like there's there's two tiers, the one through three and then the the four through seven. And then eight could be anybody. But man, are people sleeping on the Spurs? Deontay Murray is a damn good player. I've heard people say that Derek White is going to make people forget about DeMar DeRozan very quickly. I mean they they were hit harder by injuries than maybe anybody else last year as far as like to their impact players. Um so I I would pencil them in now and the caveat here is there is a team in this mix that's going to get injured like the Spurs did. Like it just it happens. And a team like Dallas, Sacramento can easily easily find their way in or a team like the Spurs that has all this young talent could rattle off wins like crazy and bump
0: one of these other teams down or out you had the blazers at seven is that where you think or do you think they're just part of that three or that group of four who are uh, somewhere between four and seven
1: excuse me when I ran these these simulations everything that I came across had Portland finishing on average uh, I believe it was like 6 point2
0: so I would say four. Because they always do a little bit better than the projections say, don't they? Certainly, yeah. And, and this
1: this is not like, oh, these are where, this is where they're going to end up. This is like, okay, as things sit right now, and we're going to know a hell of a lot about this Portland team real quick. I mean, those first 18 games are going to be like, well, either they better win 40 of their final 50, yeah. or uh, they did better than, than everybody kind of anticipated. Like, I think those are the two ways that I think that this is going to go.
0: Yeah, November's going to be a month. Well, uh, we'll have to go over the schedule soon.
1: Yes, and then if we're looking at the Eastern Conference, it's Milwaukee, Philadelphia, and who the hell cares?
0: <laughs> Sounds really,
1: good to me. <laughs> that's, just, that's just how it I'm is. I'm like, totally they, okay with that. <laughs> those two teams are just significantly better. I Boston, mm. sure, they're going to win team. Honestly, if I was going to pick a team out of the East that I, I think could really put some fear into people, and it all depends on whether he comes back healthy, is the Pacers.
0: Mm, okay. All the
1: Pacers. If, if Vic comes back good and early enough, I think this is the year Miles Turner finally kind of gets it all together. And I think that, that Coach Nate has done a hell of a job developing those guys.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't have anything to add about the East, but... I'm actually kind of excited to watch more teams in the East now because there's been so much turnover from the Blazers. So now I'm actually interested to see what happens in Miami and I'm interested to see what happens in Atlanta. So I'll probably be paying more attention to the East than I have in a long time, but still not that much. (laughs) Well... I think we did it. We got through all the questions that had been sent to us, so I think it's time now for me to go ahead and introduce the uh, interview with Ben Taylor. For those of you who don't know ben, who Ben Taylor is, he is the author of Thinking Basketball, which is a book that I love. And what it's about is it's it's really about how like how our brains watch basketball. To help us understand, like, the like the shortcuts and the tricks that our brains do to try to process the massive amount of data that you have to take in when you're trying to watch a basketball game or even afterwards after you're trying to, like, look through all the stats and try to find out what happens uh, – Ben is a cognitive science, or he had, comes from a background of cognitive science, and so like he really knows about how the brain works. And Kind he, of a smart guy. Yeah, super smart. I had no business talking to him, <laughs> <laughs> but love his book and was really happy that I got a chance uh, to talk to him about it. So here we go. This is Ben Taylor, author of Thinking Basketball. He's also the host of the Thinking Basketball podcast, and he uh, writes for his website, back picks, and he occasionally writes for some other places too, which he will fill you in on at the end. Thank you so much for your time today, Ben. Really looking forward to talking to you.
2: Well, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to it.
0: So I'm wondering if you can start off by giving us a little bit about your background and what led to writing Thinking Basketball.
2: Ooh, how much time do we have?
0: <laughs> as much time as you have.
2: Well my academic background was in cognitive science that's where I did my undergrad which is sort of this larger than psychology study of how we think and how the mind works and how intelligence works and all that and I guess at a certain point uh, I grew up playing basketball I love basketball it was it was my sport of choice and obsession and at a certain point those things merged because I had a lot to talk about in basketball as it pertained to how we perceive the sport like all these narratives that came out of seasons and historical players and historical teams. And as I was studying this in school, I noticed parallels. And at the same time, learning more about the game and watching the game and learning more about stats. When you do a, a social science degree, you have to you have to learn stats and how to measure stuff. And so all this stuff was going together. At a certain point, I wanted to write a book. And I started writing a book mostly about the basketball research that I had done. And, you know, X's and O's. And I had done a lot of hand, like studying film and hand tracking and trying to introduce new metrics and um, understanding how large scale studies and stats had worked. And I couldn't write it. Then I had this all this separate track around like, well, actually, it turns out when you look at scoring, scoring might be overrated both statistically, but the brain is wired to watch the guy with the ball. And this is one of the lead chapters in thinking basketball about scoring blindness, which really comes from this idea of we are sort of designed and have a predisposition to look at the basketball and that biases us in a certain way to notice who scored the points and maybe not how the points were scored. That bias carries over. I really wanted to call it scorekeeping blindness, or I guess if it were like a science journal, it would have been scorekeeping focus. Um, That's the idea. It's that your mind tends to focus on certain things and it'll bias how it encodes that in memory. And so these things just all kind of like merge together. And I realized I couldn't write the book without talking about how we perceive the game and the sort of underlying uh, basketball science and philosophy, if you will.
0: So basketball player turned cognitive scientist turned writer.
2: I I guess in a way, um, when everyone meets me, they say, well, you're, you're larger than I thought, and I always say, why? And they say, well, I don't know, just nerdy folks, I imagine, as being small.
0: Well, you said you started off with the love of basketball. Did you have a favorite team when you were growing up?
2: I had a lot of favorite teams. Um, I guess some people would describe me as a basketball polygamist. It is very fitting that one of my all-time favorite teams, and if anyone has heard any of my other uh, podcasts, they will know that I mentioned them, the early 90s Blazers. Oh, Yes, with um, – uh, I had an irrational love for Terry Porter.
0: That's not irrational at all. Can I just say that? That makes perfect sense.
2: <laughs> Tell me more.
0: That's the team I fell in love with basketball watching.
2: Man, Jerome Kersey running down the wing. Um,
0: Kevin Duckworth coming in, um, you know, after returning with a broken hand. Oh, so good.
2: Banging into people um, at very high – even Uncle Spliffy, Cliff Robinson – Back in the day, uh, was quite, quite the and I just really enjoyed that team. It was quite a team, very, very athletic, very dynamic, and they had a run. Um, So yeah, that was one. That was one of my teams that helped the uh, the love affair blossom.
0: Well, awesome. Well, back to thinking basketball. So I know what I would say that I think your book is about, but what do you explain it to people when say people say, well, what is your book about?
2: I've learned that it really depends. I try to find out sort of the angle or perspective of that person's fandom. and then the answer changes slightly depending on that. So uh, sometimes I say, you know more generically, it's about sort of the false narratives that we fall into, that we're designed to fall into about the sport. Um, from another perspective, it's really about how critical thinking and teamwork and team building all fit together to sort of maybe in counterintuitive ways uh, lead to an outcome in basketball that we don't expect this teamwork versus individuality element of the game that coaches and everyone has talked about for years, but still feels like it gets lost when, you know, 90 percent of hot takes and first takes are about, you know, the greatest player ever.
0: Right. Would you be interested in hearing what I think the book is about?
2: I would love to hear that. Yes.
0: So the way I read the book is I use it to help myself be a responsible fan um because you talk about within the book you talk about certain heuristics and biases that we all bring to watching the game and you talk about how the game is super complicated and super complex and first of all there's like you said earlier there's a ton going out you know out on the court and we're all just trying to watch the ball and see what's going on and then there's all the data that comes in afterwards the piles and piles and piles of stuff that now gets spit out you know instantly And then on top of that, you have like the narrative of, you know, um, what's the popular story behind these two teams that are meeting up. So there's all this stuff coming at us. And I use your book to, as I observe what I'm watching, to kind of try to filter through some of these biases that I bring to watching the game like scoring blindness is one of the ones that you talked about. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but basically it's like whoever's scoring the most, you know, must be, you know, the best player on the field or, you know, whoever wins the game is necessarily the best team. And I love to look at the game through those lenses of like, wait a minute. What, what appears obvious, is it really obvious? And is it really telling the story? So that's what I think the book is about. It's about how to, be responsible kind of with those takes that, that we all come out with.
2: Tara, can you take over the marketing for the book? (laughs) And that was, that was better than I could have said it. Um, But it's, it's actually, when you were saying that, it made me think of another really common answer that I realize I've been giving lately, which is, it explains why we need data to understand what the heck is going on out on the court. And, you know, you get into discussions about basketball. There's there's a lot of culture around basketball, whether it's at the the gym, the Y, the street, the barbershop. And one thing that I feel like I always run into in those discussions is that it's not rocket science. It's a very simple game. And it's like, well, if, if you reduce it to, I mean, for instance, they really used to just genuinely only keep track of who scored. They didn't even keep track of field goal attempts 50 or 60 years ago. They just didn't think of that as being important. And so if you reduce it down to that, yes, it is a simple game. But what's kind of incredible when you learn more about the sport, when you learn more about X's and O's and all of the strategy and tactics is it's really hard for us to keep track of what's going on when someone doesn't have the ball. Those other nine players or eight players in off ball action and everything that's going on there. Uh, I think it was John Wooden who famously said something, you know, show me, show me you have value when you don't have the ball because you won't have it 80 or 90% of the time. And it's all of that stuff that is not only complex, but then we do it 200 times a game and then we play 80 games. And so keeping, keeping sorts and keeping tabs on that is, is actually just too much for us.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's a really good segue, actually, to the next question, because you talk about how there's just so much going on in the game, and our brains are trying to take it all in. And you bring up a couple of concepts, and you explain kind of like why we watch the games the way we do, and that is the concepts of heuristics and biases. So can you explain what those are?
2: Let me give you the the back of the napkin quick version. So basically – A heuristic is kind of like a rule of thumb. It's a shortcut. It's a a thinking shortcut because the short of is we don't have time to sit around and have perfect thoughts about everything. So we take these little rules of thumbs, these little pathways that help us be pretty good. They help us get to where we need to be without always being perfect and there's a huge evolutionary drive behind that but when it comes to watching sports or something or or trying to figure out what's happening in a in a basketball game they can you know lead us into little traps they can there are these little gaps that can get bigger and bigger and bigger and then we fall into them as potholes without realizing it basically because the mind is not designed to have these perfect uh, algorithms and these fancy thought processes. Instead, we want these sort of like little simple shortcuts that are heuristics. So the heuristics by nature lead to bias.
0: So let's talk a little bit about some of the some of these concepts that you touch on and then let's apply them to like what's been going on in the league, because this was a tremendous summer for changes around the league and I think everybody's got a million hot takes on what they think is going to happen and this is where like the being the responsible fan comes in for me so you know as we try to decipher what's going to happen when Anthony Davis you know joins the Lakers you know if he doesn't score as much is he still going to be you know the superstar or if he scores a whole bunch but the team doesn't win is he still a superstar things like that but Let's talk about – go back to scoring blindness. Can you describe what you mean by scoring blindness?
2: So as I as I mentioned briefly earlier, the the real full spirit of the name is really originally scorekeeping blindness. So it starts with scoring because we have this uh, focus, this predisposition to watch the basketball. And so we follow it around the court and then it goes in and whoever were the last person who, who shot it was, we say, oh, that person – caused the score they were the one responsible for the score and obviously the, the team that scores the most points wins so it starts with how we watch but what's interesting is the way the mind works is there's layers so it continues after when you pick up the paper the next morning and you open up that box score the first thing you see is who scored the most points and, and i have this i have an old clip in the book that I was able to find, uh, it's like 60 years old or something. Where newspapers back then they just wouldn't even include other data in the box score, basically, besides who scored the points. And so there is this predisposition, there's this bias in the sport toward thinking the guys who score are the best. And if you score the most, you're you know you're top dog, you're number one. If you score a little bit less, maybe you're a, we have terms you know you're a beta, you're a second banana, you're not the alpha. Um And then on and on down to a role player. And it turns out that there are all sorts of other things happening that can lead to a player scoring that don't necessarily or the, the responsibility doesn't necessarily fully lie with the guy who ended up dunking the ball at the end of the great fast break.
0: So the player who scores the most isn't necessarily the exactly. best person on the team.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Exactly.
0: So I've been bowling on this a whole bunch all summer as I've been listening to people talk about Devin Booker and, you know, these young players who are on teams that aren't really good who can score a whole bunch. So how do you look at a player like him who maybe doesn't have the strongest team around him? you know, to decide or evaluate, I guess you're not going to decide whether or not he's a good player, but to evaluate his game and where he brings the most value to his team.
2: So interestingly enough, I did a video on Devin Booker this summer. And then that question that you just asked was so sort of persistent in my mind that I ended up doing a podcast. I think it's the Thinking Basketball podcast number 24, I want to say off the top of my head, which really starts to pull the onion back on not just Booker, but all of these players historically who are really high scoring players on these really poor teams. And the idea that the way they're scoring in those settings doesn't guarantee that when you put them in improved settings with more talented players around them, that they will have the same ability to score. And so what you see historically is players that are big scorers in those situations, and sometimes their scoring goes down a little bit. Sometimes it goes down a lot. Sometimes their efficiency goes down. There's an old adage that, you know, uh, if you score a lot with big usage, you need to, uh, excuse me, when when you lower your usage, your efficiency will go up. Well, that doesn't always happen because it depends on the situations and the circumstances on the court that the player is being put in. So I think Booker is one of those interesting situations where... For me, the truth is a little bit in the middle. Middle. He's very talented, but there's no guarantee that if you put him on a better team, if you were to add him to the Blazers tomorrow, they would get another scoring piece. right? You can start going through the thought process. They would get another scoring piece, uh, but is he going to take the ball out of Damian Lillard's hands? Is he going to take the ball out of CJ's hands? What are the lineups going to look like defensively? Uh, you know, who's who's playing, are they changing how they play off ball? Or are they changing the offensive system in any way? These are the things that matter, not just on team A, a guy scored 25 points a game. On team B, a guy scored 25 points a game. When you put them together, you get 50 points a game.
0: Well, I'd love to know what you think of some of the moves that the Trailblazers made this summer. It's been a real confusing summer, I think, for a lot of us here in Portland, because on the one hand, they made a whole bunch of moves. Um, After having you know preached continuity for a really long time, and suddenly they moved a bunch of players who were you know not the core of the team, but were certainly very important to the team. So I'm wondering, let's let's start with kind of the well, the tallest one anyway. Although maybe Pau Gasol is taller, but (laughs) I'm talking about Hassan Whiteside uh, coming into at least. Hold this spot for Yusuf Nurkic while he recovers from his broken leg. Um, what are your thoughts on that move by the Trailblazers?
2: So, especially in light of what we just talked about with team building or how guys go together, I think the theory of Whiteside to me is nice here because you add, you, you have a potential defensive upgrade. You don't have a guy who demands the basketball, uh, who needs thirty post post touches a game or something like that, and in theory. He can come in and upgrade the defense, be a rim protector, have a paint presence. But I keep emphasizing in theory here because Whiteside is a little more, you know, his history is a little more enigmatic or inconsistent. He certainly has the talent around the rim and in the paint to go hunt shots and block them and and, and provide some defensive backbone. But he's a guy who. I think statistically at times, especially if you look at his full set of numbers, you know, I just it, they kind of blow me away because I so rarely look at the the per game slash line, the points, rebounds, assists these days. But some of his numbers in the last few seasons have been huge, you know, 17 points, 14 boards, a couple blocks. But I I don't know. I, I think the theory is good. I don't know how much, you know, I don't know what you're going to get. I don't know if you can get him to buy in. He does have uh, issues at times. Chasing blocks. He does have issues at times with rotational awareness and he's a guy who you look at the package and you're like, oh, this should be a top five or top 10 defender in the league, a game changing defensive presence. And I don't really think he's been that consistently in his career. So that's sort of uh, my, my first take on on him.
0: So one of the thing major changes that people are expecting is that since al Aminu is gone, that people are thinking that Zach Collins is going to be replacing him at power forward alongside Hassan Whiteside. Have you uh, seen enough Zach Collins uh, to have any ideas and thoughts on what that pairing might look like or how he might do as a replacement for al Aminu, who – he was sometimes Alfred was sometimes maligned here a little bit because maybe he didn't have the most outstanding stats. and then sometimes in the uh, in the playoffs he struggled to be a big apparent difference maker. but I really personally believe that he was an Im- really important part of the glue that held the team together.
2: Yeah, he played very well last year. I think he, uh, particularly last year in, you know, November through March, uh, that kind of like under the radar, the national media is not going to ever notice. I thought he was really important. It's, it can be challenging sometimes to your point about fans uh, being a little disappointed in the playoffs. It's a challenge when you have a roster that really doesn't have any business winning 60 or 65 games, getting to the end of the playoff stretch and having to go against that talent sometimes. So I I agree with you that I think he was an important piece. The thing with Collins to me, and I do like, like he's another guy. I like the potential of him. I like the promise of him. He's still young. He's flash defensive prowess at times. I think the big question for me with him playing four right now is, can he shoot? Right. I think there's an expectation that the two of them are not going to live in the paint together.
0: Uh, Alongside Whiteside?
2: Yes, yes, exactly. When they play on, when they share the court together, if they're indeed going to have Whiteside at center and Collins at power forward, you know, is Collins, does he have the ability now to stretch and uh, either, whether it's play pick and pop or fade out to the perimeter, there's just sort of, and this is something that is touched upon in the book. I actually wrote the section years, I wrote the section in like, 2013 that's how long it took me uh, to get around to publish it but the spacing and the way these guys fit and shooting these are incredibly portable or scalable skills because when you don't have the ball you still need to be able to have value and in the case with Collins I don't think what you're looking for is a guy who suddenly can replace everything Nurkic does as a you know middle paint playmaker and scoring weapon if you have the right mismatch instead I think You're asking a guy who, uh, you know, in Collins's case, can also add a dimension to his game and float out onto the perimeter because you don't want too many guys on the court that can't shoot. You run into spacing problems. Defenses can cheat and sag off you and things like that. So that that is my understanding of that experiment. But you're closer to it. You tell me.
0: Yeah, I don't I don't know where it's going to. I really don't know where it's gonna go. But I one thing that I really have seen with the moves the Blazers made this offseason is that they are definitely prioritizing offense. But he's kind of the outlier because he hasn't really shown a big scoring output. But I do remember one, you know, part of your book where you're talking about the Spurs and you're talking about, you know, how Tim Duncan, you know, maintained a, you know, a pretty high level of scoring. But the other guys who were playing alongside him Really waffled a lot in terms of, you know, sometimes, you know, Manu Ginobili would put up a 27 point game and then sometimes he would score three and they all kind of fell into what it was that was required of them of that game. And so I guess what I was hoping when, um, when I think about Collins is that he will kind of fit that role of being able to do what's needed for that game. And I think that's kind of how Portland has maybe been built in terms of, trying to find guys who have more than one skill set. And I think they've, you know, Damian Lillard clearly has many skill sets. And Yusuf Nurkic, I think, you know, kind of surprised, uh, surprised me anyway with, you know, a skill set beyond just protecting the rim. Suddenly he's, you know, passing it all over the place. You know, CJ has multiple abilities. And I think what the Blazers are hoping is that, Collins will also have some of those abilities. And it just struck me when I was reading that passage about the Spurs that the Blazers had maybe built a team where everybody doesn't have to play the same way every night, where, you know, they will be flexible depending on who's hot and also depending on, you know, who their opponent is and how they can exploit what the opponent is bringing at them.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point. I'm, I'm sticking with you taking over the marketing <laughs> for the book um so 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 for those who haven't read it that passage was about a, the 2003 spurs who were relatively young they had these guys who would end up becoming hall of famers but it was duncan and different nights it was different they, they were either very young or very old so you know Steve Kerr has what's known as the Steve Kerr game where he came off the bench in like the third quarter against Dallas and hit five threes or something and they would have they would kind of take turns it would be uh, a young Tony Parker one night having a good matchup and having a good game Ginobili would have a, a good night the next that was his rookie season even Antonio Daniels I think on that team no, it was Speedy Claxton Speedy Claxton who came in uh, and had the some good name, games.
0: by the way yeah
2: <laughs> Yeah, speed. Speed. They had they had good names on that team. Um. So it, I think it's a great call on your part because you you get that with teams that are either very young or very old. Um, and sometimes you know, as we talked about earlier, you have temperamental players as well who fit into that, like Whiteside. And so you know, Pal Gasol is sort of in the in the sage years, if you will. Um, Collins potentially is up and coming. Uh, another guy who could fit this bill is Anthony Simons coming off the bench, right? Like it's possible if things click, he's, you're going to get instant offense and you're going to get stuff that works on certain nights and on other nights, things aren't going to go as well. And so I think if you have three, four, five of those guys on your roster in the middle or later part of your rotation, you can, uh, tread water or Excel at times by having a different guy step up in different roles on different nights. That's, that's a good point.
0: So we're just about running out of time. So I have two quick questions that I want to throw at you. One is you started to talk about a little earlier about how a lot of the writing that you did for this book, you know, was in, you know, 2013, 14, 15, and it came out in 16. You started writing. You you were you were writing this kind of like right at the beginning of just like this total three point explosion. I guess. Um, I'm wondering if you've thought about um, things that you'd want to go back and revisit. You know, based on like you know, Maury Ball being a thing now, um, or if you'd ever thought about writing a second edition to address some things that have changed since the first edition was written.
2: I think I would want to publish it earlier since uh the the ideas at that time when i was floating them around largely in like online message board forms where you can sort of spar and refine the ideas were there was a lot of pushback against them and i said look and there's even this this one sentence in the book that i still remember because as i was trying to publish it certain teams were winning titles and the game was changing so rapidly it's changed so much in the last five or six years since I wrote this. And uh, the sentence is something like a team of high level sco- uh, shooters and high level passers would be downright scary. And then 14, the Spurs won the beautiful game, 15, the Warriors, 16, the Warriors, 17, <laughs> the Warriors. And I was just like, well, I was like, guys, guys, <laughs> I, I couldn't get it out the door fast enough. So, um, the, I think to your, to answer your question, I don't know if I would do a, a second edition. It's a lot, but the spirit of the, of the answer is a lot more about that kind of spacing movement, decision-making that entire dynamic that I would say in retrospect, I kind of left aside. It's still, it's still a topic that, I want to get to this year in my content. I think I think it's sort of the the frontier, the undiscovered country. Yes, three point shooting and spacing has become, and gravity. These things have all become very in vogue. But there's even more to that. Once you start to you know pull back the onion on that, you start to see like, okay, your your movement, um, the way you set screens, even the screeners' movement. That's something that I thought the 2014 Spurs were ahead of their time on. Is just have everybody be more active and move more. And that causes a lot of chaos. And, you know, it's a copycat league. Things are successful and we're seeing more of that. We're seeing more passes. We're seeing more shooting. You need to be able to shoot. Uh, I think we are on the cusp of a passing revolution as well with all the spacing. And so, yeah, those are the the big ones for me.
0: I think it's interesting because, you know, the game itself has changed so much, but the way our brains work, like, I'm wondering, like, you know, as more of us watch and consume, like, are our brains actually going to change the way that we take in the game?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's a transience to it because the younger generation, as they come up, that's all they're going to know. They won't have any sort of pre existing ideas to fight against. So they're going to look back 10 or 20 or 30 years and they're going to go, why on earth was this guy taking 18 mid range jumpers a game? Uh, this is so inefficient where, you know, 20 years ago you had to pull people by the hair and the teeth to get them to take 33s <laughs> or so you can't take all those threes, your field goal percentage is going down. Um, so yes, I think it absolutely will change in that regard. And then a funny story that, that, uh, popped into my head when you mentioned that my, my brother, who's a casual basketball fan, he hadn't seen a game in a couple years. Um, and this was like 2000, I want to say the 2018 season, he turned on the finals and he said, why, he said, why does everyone, he said, why does it look so different? Why does everyone look so small? Are the players really small? And I said, and and I said, no, they're not small. What has happened? And I noticed this doing my historical work, watching games from the sixties to the present. What has happened is the game is so spaced out. The cameras are zoomed back. And so so watch a game. You can see it sometimes in my clips on YouTube. When you have a game in the 70s or 80s or 90s, they didn't need to show a guy 33 feet away from the, you know, at the top of the arc outside the three-point line.
0: Yeah, they didn't have to show as much of the –
2: They didn't have to show it. So they zoomed in and when you watched Half Court – basketball, you barely even had the edge of the three point arc in the frame. So the players appear bigger. Now you have the same size players, roughly sometimes even bigger. And instead we've got, you know, James Harden starting his pick and roll 46 feet away uh, and going from there. And so you have to zoom out to account that the the floor is more spaced out. So you don't have this sensation of everyone being in a phone booth and these giant men, you know, it's like football, these giant men next to each other. Um, And so that's a that's a simple yet powerful example of how even just the way you watch the game, the medium that you take the game in impacts your impression of it.
0: That's super interesting. I never thought about never thought about that. Okay, so last question is, I'm glad that you brought up all those historical games that you watched because um, I listened to your Thinking Basketball podcast, and um, there's a lot of talk on that and all over the place about doing historical comparisons. And my confession is that I don't really care about historical comparisons, and I feel a little guilty about that. So can you convince me why I should care about historical comparisons? <laughs>
2: Man, so you definitely haven't read my my greatest career series. I'll I'll, I'll take that as a well. Because I just like seen.
0: I just am like I I just I'm, I'm 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 interested in what's in the future, and with the past, uh, okay. like, You know I watch okay. old stuff, but
2: no, I got it, I got it. So I, I I think I'll convince you in the way that is most interesting to me, which is it's one thing to look at the present, but I feel like especially with this sport. Everything in this sport is stacked on the thing that came before it, literally from the dribbling moves to what's legal to the way you step and use your feet. Euro steps, hops, jump stops, travels, um, screening techniques, pick and rolls into Spain, pick and roll into variations on different pick and rolls, whether you crash the glass or you have transition like everything to me about the history feeds into the present in a way that is so proximal and so visceral. Um, that's really my interest in history. And there's a there's an element of comparing players that is pure philosophical. it's it's pure, you know, it, it there isn't necessarily um, anything tangible behind it. But to me, it connects back to like some of the ideas in the book, right? It connects back to the ideas of understanding like what what makes someone successful on the court, what makes teams successful. On the court, what teams have failed before and if they had an individual player. I think in the book I bring up the Wilt Chamberlain going to the Lakers in 1969. At least I allude to it somewhere. That was the first super team. That was uh, Elgin Baylor and Jerry West and they got Wilt and you had three of the top scorers in the league. So they were going to dominate, right? And it turned out, no. (laughs) No, they didn't. Um, And so we can look at that through the lens of a team uh, which I think is so much of fandom, but also the individual components of the team, we can also take those apart and kind of understand them and compare them. Where the ranking, you know, where your ranking is and how they fully stack up, to me that has so much to do with criteria, which is something I try to emphasize in my work. Like it really Thank it really
0: depends. that, by the way. Because everybody can just be like, oh, yeah, he should be, like, in the top 10 or whatever. And I'm like, then name them and why you've ranked them in that way. And I think that, you know, we all have – we carry around, you know, who we think are the top 10 or the top 15 or whatever. But, like, I want to see your matrix. I want to see your rubric that says this is what we're – I mean, I want to see a rubric in the dunk contest. That's how desperate I am for, like, a rubric. Like, what are we judging people on? And I guess when it comes to, like, historical comparisons – like, I don't really care where Larry Bird falls, um, but I I am interested in, like, you were talking about, like, the different elements of the game, the way they build on top of each other, but yeah, when it comes to, like, player comparisons, I just, like, I don't know. Ranking you, is just so subjective, I guess, and nobody wants to come out with, like, the definitive, like, this is the rubric. Fill it out.
2: Well, yeah, well, is well
0: come out on top.
2: perfect is the enemy of good too often, so just because we can't get it perfect doesn't mean we can't. <laughs> have a discussion about it or a ballpark. But yeah, I mean, the I can come up with 10 different goat lists depending on the different criteria or the rubric that you want to emphasize. But I think, to me, what I've learned in doing so much work about historical players is it doesn't matter if you have Bird 4th, 7th, 11th, or 18th. What matters is why was he good? How did he excel? And and to a certain degree, how does it still matter? You know, when, when Luka Doncic comes into the league... And you have a chorus of people saying, he's not athletic and he can't do this. And so therefore, he can't be that good. It's like, well, let me introduce you to Dirk Nowitzki. Mm -hmm. Let me introduce you to Steve Nash. And let me introduce you to Larry Bird. And those are players from, you know, they span 30 plus years and they were extremely successful. And it wasn't necessarily because they were stronger, bigger or jumping over everyone.
0: Okay. Well, I'm not entirely convinced, but I I'm, I'm a little bit closer to understanding why people like to do the player historical comparisons. The most important thing to me is where does Damian Lillard end up because he's my favorite and he's the one I'll throw all of my marketing genius behind.
2: <laughs> well, Canton. He's, I mean, uh, Springfield. He's going to end up in Springfield.
0: Yes, for sure. Well, Ben, it has been really fun talking to you. Thank you so much for uh, taking time to join me today. I really appreciate it. Can you tell folks uh, how they can find your work?
2: Oh, Thinking Basketball podcast available on iTunes and Stitcher and all those podcast platforms. Thinking Basketball YouTube channel as well. That's on YouTube, of course. Um, My website is backpicks.com, and you can find me on Twitter at LG35, E-L-G-E-E-35.
0: Thanks again for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's edition of the Blazer's Edge podcast. Thanks, everybody, so much for listening. I can be found at TCB Biggs on Twitter, and you can also find the Hoops and Talks podcast, our Thursday podcast on twitter at hoops and talks subscribe to the blazers edge podcast feed to get our two episodes a week you can find it on apple or stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts uh dan go ahead and take us out of here
1: all right, folks, as always, you can find me on all social media at dmarang, at DMARANG, as well as Thursday nights at 6.30 on NBC Sports Northwest on Blazers Outsiders with Joe Simons, Shane Brennan, and myself. Uh, we do have a very, very cool announcement that I'll be excited to share once everything is done and in place, so look forward to that. Uh, we do have some more Blazers guests coming on the show before the season starts, so look forward to that, and hopefully... Uh, If we can get their agents to agree to make some podcast appearances here as well. (laughs) I'm working on it. I'm still working on it. (laughs) Um, Other than that, uh, thanks for listening. We'll catch you guys next week. Bye.